0: everyone and welcome back to For the Love of True Crime. As always, I would like to give my disclaimer that I mean no harm towards any of the people I discuss in this case. These are simply opinions and facts that I've learned on the internet that I'm compiling into one video. I would also like to give a quick warning that this case does involve mentions of suicide, so if that isn't your vibe, then please click off now. All right, let's jump in. So today I'm going to tell you all about the death of Brian Wells and the convoluted story behind the tragic event. There isn't really much about Brian's background out there, but let me tell you what I know. So Brian Wells was born on November 15, 1956 in Warren, Pennsylvania to Rose and Harold Wells. Brian decided to drop out of Erie's East High School when he was a sophomore at the ripe age of 16 years old in order to work as a mechanic. On August 28, 2003, When he was 46 years old, he was killed by a homemade collar bomb that was placed around his neck in order to force him to rob a PNC bank in Erie, Pennsylvania. At this time, Wells was a loyal pizza delivery man for 10 years at a local restaurant named Mama Mia's Pizzeria. On the day of his murder, Brian was working and took an order at 1.30 p.m. for two small sausage and pepperoni pies to be delivered to a TV transmission tower site located off of a dirt road. This order was called in from a payphone at a nearby gas station close to the delivery site. He walked out of the pizzeria around 2 p.m. to complete this delivery. When Brian arrived at the location of the delivery, he alleged that three black men jumped him and placed the collar bomb on his neck and gave him detailed instructions to a scavenger hunt in order to defuse the bomb himself. These instructions included nine long pages of handwritten directions addressed to the, quote, bomb hostage, which happened to be Brian Wells out of bad luck. The bank Wells was instructed to rob was a PNC bank in Summit Town Center on Peach Street, where he was instructed to hand the teller a note that demanded $250,000 or else the bomb would go off after 15 minutes. Brian entered the bank at 2.30 p.m. and he was carrying a shotgun that was disguised as a walking cane. Because of the time limit of 15 minutes, the teller was unable to open the vault, so she just handed Wells a bag containing exactly $8,702. While the teller was filling up the bag, Brian grabbed a complimentary lollipop, and when he received the cash, he confidently walked out of the bank swinging his bag of cash and his cane gun. After robbing the bank, Brian began the scavenger hunt in order to get the collar bomb off of his neck. But after 15 minutes, police found him and arrested him on the spot. Because of the questionably active bomb strapped to Brian, police sat him down in a parking lot and kept their distance. The officers did not attempt to defuse the bomb as they feared they would set it off by messing with it. Instead, they focused on clearing pedestrians out of the way in case the bomb exploded. A whole ten minutes passed before the bomb squad was even called, which I personally think was a huge mistake in the situation. Whether police believed that the bomb was real or not, they should have treated the situation with urgency and diligence. Unfortunately, while the bomb squad was only three minutes away stuck in traffic, the bomb did explode and took Brian's life with it. Now here is where the story starts to get a little bit confusing, so just stay with me here. After his death, police investigators came to the conclusion that Brian was actually in on the plan to rob the bank, and the story Brian told of the three strangers who jumped him was just a cover-up. However, they stated that they believed that Brian thought that the bomb was not real and would only serve as the main reason for him going through with the robbery. The FBI claims that two witnesses stepped forward and told them that Brian talked about a robbery that he was going to be participating in a month before his death. It was thought that Brian was ultimately killed in order to reduce the number of witnesses. On the other hand, Brian's family adamantly denies his involvement in the planning of the robbery and his own demise. They believe that Brian was in fact held at gunpoint and forced to wear the bomb in order to rob the bank. After suspicions rose among investigators, the FBI executed a search warrant of Brian Wells' home. While doing the search, officers did not find much, but they did find an address book that included names and phone numbers of local prostitutes. The most important name on that list was Jessica Hoopsick, who we will discuss further much later on. The main reason investigators grew suspicious of Brian was because of his behavior while he was robbing the bank. Remember earlier when I mentioned that he grabbed a lollipop and began eating it while the teller was filling up the bag? Imagine yourself in this situation. You were jumped and an active bomb was strapped to your neck in order to force you to rob a bank. Would you feel comfortable enough to take and eat a lollipop? Also, he confidently walked out of the bank and, according to witnesses, did so like Charlie Chaplin. It didn't make sense as to why Brian was so calm, unless he had an understanding that the bomb wasn't real and that he was safe. So, if investigators believe that Brian was involved, then who else were the co-conspirators? Let me introduce our second player in this bank robbery scheme, named Bill Rothstein. Bill was a very handy and intelligent man that was self-described as, quote, not well-adjusted when referring to society. At first, Bill just seemed to be someone who happened to live near the TV transmission tower that Brian said he was jumped at. But on September 20th, 2003, Bill called 911 in order to report that he was hiding a dead body for his ex-girlfriend. We will discuss this ex-girlfriend later on, but for now, let's continue to focus on Bill. He claimed that the dead body was in the freezer located in the garage. Police arrived at Bill's house and then promptly arrested him. He confessed to police that the guilt of hiding the body was eating away at him to the point where he wanted to commit suicide. He even got to the point of writing a suicide note, which police later confirmed they found inside of a desk within his home. Within this note, Bill said a lot of things along the lines of apologizing for his decision to end his life and maintained his innocence about a couple of things. First, he said that the man in the freezer was named Jim Roden, and that he, quote, did not kill him nor participate in his death. Second, Bill said that this has nothing to do with the Wells case, which police thought was pretty random considering he was not suspected of being involved in a bank heist. Over the next couple of days, Bill told police how Jim Ronan ended up dead in his freezer. He explained that he received a call from his friend and ex-girlfriend who told him that she shot and killed her boyfriend after an argument and that she needed help removing the body and cleaning up the scene. He complied with her request and took the body to his house to store in a chest freezer for five weeks. He even melted down the gun used to kill Jim and placed the pieces around Erie, Pennsylvania. The plan was to grind down Jim's body with a wood chipper, but ultimately Bill couldn't go through with it and contemplated killing himself or calling the police. Obviously, he decided to call the police as he was afraid of what his ex-girlfriend might do. Now let me introduce this ex-girlfriend. Her name is Marjorie Deal Armstrong. Growing up, Marjorie was an excellent student and extremely intelligent. She even went on to earn her master's degree in education from Gannon College. In her 20s, Marjorie started to feel like her mental health was deteriorating and ended up being diagnosed with multiple mental illnesses, with bipolar being the most prevalent. Actually, one expert thought that Marjorie wasn't even mentally ill, and that she was just narcissistic and had a severe personality disorder. In 1984, Marjorie killed her at-the-time boyfriend named Robert Thomas when she shot him six times while he was laying on the couch. However, she ended up being acquitted as the jury felt that the circumstance involved self-defense. There was a total of five men in Marjorie's life that all died under strange circumstances. For example, Marjorie was only married once and it was a brief marriage because her husband, Richard Armstrong, died when he fell and hit his head on a coffee table. She actually ended up suing the hospital that watched over her husband for negligence and won $175,000 in a settlement. Some people believe that she got away with murder and then won almost $200,000 involving her husband's death. After Bill told police that Marjorie killed Jim Roden, they placed her under arrest for first-degree murder on September 21st. Marjorie insisted that she was completely innocent and that Bill was actually the one who murdered her boyfriend out of jealousy. When police arrived at her residence, her house was a mess. It looked like an extreme case of hoarders if you've ever seen that show. The police who drove her down to the station said that the hardest part was how bad she smelled, as she probably hadn't showered in a matter of days or weeks. Marjorie was not in good shape while she was being guided to the interrogation room. She was constantly mumbling to herself that Bill Rothstein was going to get sued and so were the police station. It was obvious to the officers that there was some kind of mental illness involved. Marjorie's trial did not happen until January of 2005, 16 months after the murder. At this point, Bill could not testify as he had died of lymphoma in July of 2004. Marjorie pleaded guilty but mentally ill and was sentenced to 7 to 20 years in state prison. Since Brian Wells' death was being investigated by the FBI and the Jim Roden murder was a local state police matter. It took a while for them to associate the two, even with Rothstein's suicide note. It actually wasn't until Marjorie cut a deal with investigators after she hinted that Rowan's murder had, quote, everything to do with the bank heist bombing. She told police that if she was moved from Muncie State Penitentiary to a minimum security prison near Erie, she would spill the beans on everything she knew. Marjorie told federal investigators that she had no hand in the Bank ice plot besides supplying Rothstein with the kitchen timers for the bomb, and that she also knew it was going to happen. She also claimed that Brian Wells was in on the plan and willing to rob the bank. She stated that Rothstein was the head honcho and masterminded the whole plan. Although Marjorie was pointing the finger at Bill, investigators believed that she had a hefty hand in the plan. They felt this way because in prior weeks they had spoken to four informants that stated Marjorie discussed the Bank Heist plot in intimate detail before it occurred. One even stated that Rodin was killed because Marjorie believed, quote, he was going to tell about the robbery, and also that she was the one to measure Wells's neck for the collar bomb. Now it's time to introduce another player in this plot, Kenneth Barnes. Barnes was a local crack dealer who was also serving time for unrelated drug charges when his brother turned him in for his involvement in the bank heist. Barnes was being faced with even more jail time, so he cut a deal that he would give his full account of the plot in exchange for a reduced sentence. Kenneth Barnes was an old fishing buddy of Marjorie's, and he confirmed to federal investigators that she was actually the mastermind behind the bank heist in late 2005. Marjorie wanted her father dead because she believed he was spending too much money that she was entitled to when he died. So she hired Barnes to assassinate her father in order to get the inheritance. Barnes told investigators that the whole idea of the bank heist came to be when Marjorie needed to pay him $250,000 to commit the murder. In February of 2006, federal agents planned a meeting with Marjorie where they told her that they had enough evidence to bring an indictment against her. This sent her off the rails, and she began cussing out both the officers and lawyer she brought with her, but for some reason, she continued to talk. Police were dealing with the best kind of suspect, one that cannot stop talking and incriminating themselves. Even though Marjorie told agents that she would not provide any more information unless she was granted immunity, it was too late. She said too much. In July of 2007, the U.S. Attorney's Office called for a press conference on the Bank Heist case as they had enough evidence to put the investigation to rest and charge the individuals involved. U.S. Attorney Mary Beth Buchanan was the one to deliver the news that Marjorie and Kenneth were being charged with the development of the robbery plot and that both Rothstein and Wells were also co-conspirators. However, Buckingham stated that Wells believed he would be committing the robbery wearing a fake bomb, which explains why he was so confident and calm during it. When Wells learned that the bomb was real, he wanted no part in the robbery anymore, but it was too late and they forced him to do it. Kenneth Barnes ended up pleading guilty and agreed to testify against Marjorie in hopes that his sentence would be reduced. He was facing up to 45 years in prison with charges relating to the planning of the bank heist. It was time for Marjorie to stand trial in July of 2008, but U.S. District Court Judge Sean J. McLaughlin found her to be mentally incompetent and not allowed to stand trial yet. She had to spend a period of time in a mental hospital before she was eligible. It wasn't until March of the next year that Marjorie would be mentally competent enough to stand trial. However, Marjorie was diagnosed with glandular cancer and her trial was yet again delayed while she waited her prognosis. It was determined that she had three to seven years to live. The trial did begin in October of 2010. On the fifth day of the trial, Kenneth Barnes testified on the stand. He claimed that Marjorie was the mastermind behind the whole plot, and she recruited people to carry out the plan. Bill Rothstein was enlisted to make the bomb, and Wells was lured into the robbery with the promise of financial compensation. The story ended up being that Wells was involved in a relationship with a prostitute, the one I actually mentioned before named Jessica Hoopsick. He would buy crack for her and exchange it for sex. However, Wells bought so much crack that he fell into debt and needed the money that he would obtain from committing the robbery. It was not until he delivered the pizza to the TV transmission site that he learned that the bomb was real. They tackled him and held him at gunpoint as he was strapped into it. On the eighth day of the trial, Marjorie took the stand to testify in her defense, which was a huge mistake for her. She ended up being on the stand for two days for a total of five and a half hours. Each and every time she opened her mouth, she would release a plethora of words that half the time didn't even make sense. She didn't mention Brian Wells until the final 10 minutes of her testimony, when she claimed that she never met him and the only time she saw him was on the news after he died. Not surprisingly, a jury did not buy her story, and after just 11 hours of deliberation, the jury found Marjorie Deal Armstrong guilty on all three charges. These charges were armed bank robbery, conspiracy to commit a robbery, and using a destructive device in a crime of violence. Marjorie was sentenced for her crimes on February 28, 2011, where she faced a mandatory life sentence that would run consecutively with her murder charge. Before I tell you where all the players of the story are now, let me introduce one last person, Jessica Hoopsick. It wasn't until 2018 that the prostitute confessed to her involvement in the bank heist plot. She stated that Barnes had approached her and asked her to find someone that would be willing to commit the actual robbery. She suggested Wells and backed up her claim by saying he was a, quote, pushover. She also expressed regret for her role in the case so where is everybody now well as you guys already heard rothstein and wells had both died obviously wells died after being arrested and the bomb went off rothstein as i previously mentioned died at the age of 60 from non hopkins lymphoma let's discuss someone's fate that we didn't already know marjorie deal armstrong she ended up dying in prison at the age of 68 in 2017 from breast cancer She had only spent six years out of her life sentence behind bars. Now for Kenneth Barnes. He also passed away from his diabetes diagnosis in 2019 at the age of 64. Jessica Hoopsick is actually the only player in the story that is still alive. So, where is she? Well, she never ended up being charged for her involvement in the bank heist bombing. The last update I could find on Jessica was from 2018 where she was arrested on prostitution charges in June of that year. If you enjoyed this case, then I literally beg you to watch the Netflix docuseries called Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist. I am not going to say this guy's last name right, so I apologize, but the series follows a man named Trey Borzillarelli, that wrote to Marjorie while she was in prison to try to get her to tell the truth about her involvement in the bank robbery. It also recounts the whole story in great detail and interviews many officers and federal agents that were involved in the case. Although the critic ratings aren't stellar, this is probably one of my favorite docuseries hands down. It was very interesting to see the explanation of the crime and the aftermath. I will warn you, though, that there are some upsetting images and videos included in the show, like Brian Wells dying. So, if that kind of scares you, I don't blame you. Maybe skip the show or fast forward through that part. It's just like in the first episode. But um, I wish I had a warning because seeing a man die is not my favorite thing. So, just a heads up. But that's going to do it for me on this case. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know it's a crazy case. Please like and subscribe if you would like to see more of my content. Also make sure to leave your theories and thoughts in the comments down below and make sure to respect each other. This is a safe space for anyone who may stumble upon this channel. And as always, stay safe out there because you never know who you can trust.